So we've got a global pandemic, political division, out-of-control wildfires, conflict in the Middle East, and what's the burning question on my mind? Is Thor fat? But on a serious note, I've always loved mythology, and the Norse myths in particular have always had a special place in my heart. And so, as silly as all this might seem, that's a lot of alliteration, um, you know, it does still interest me. I hear talk of, you know, Norse mythology, my ears perk up. So what's going on is there's this video game series called God of War. And actually, when I was younger, I was a big fan, actually still am, of the uh, Devil May Cry video game series. And I can remember when the first God of War came, uh, game came out, I'm like, holy crap, that is like a blatant ripoff of Devil May Cry. And uh, my apologies, but yes, I am going to get kind of nerdy with this one. <laughs> um, so those listeners who prefer, you know, when I cover atheism or, you know, religion and when I, you know, kind of wax philosophical on things, my apologies, this is probably going to be more of a pop culture, you know, nerd out episode. But there will be, I think I will wax philosophical a little, and we are going to be talking about, uh, you know, literature and that kind of thing. But the Devil May Cry games, they're made by uh, Capcom, a, a Japanese company, and they were kind of distinct in that they had this um, kind of third-person camera where you were kind of looking down at your character. Real hack-and-slash games. You ran around, jumped around, uh, smashing things, collecting orbs. And when uh, the first God of War came, uh, game came out, I really loved it. It was a really fun game, but... I think one of the reasons why I liked it so much is because it, I felt really at home playing it because it was so mu it looked so much like a Devil May Cry game and it felt so so much like one. Um, I don't know if anyone from you know the Devil May Cry games may have contributed to God of War at all. I don't think so. Um, it might have just been a a blatant ripoff of the uh, of the game mechanics, etc. I don't know. Because even though it was Sony who published God of War, and I think Sony's a Japanese company, right? I believe the staff and the developers were Western, and, uh, and Devil May Cry, I believe that was a Japanese team. Um, once again, Capcom, a Japanese company. But anyway, the God of War franchise became hugely popular in its own right. And I think it was back in 2018, but strangely, they came out with another game simply entitled God of War. But it wasn't a hard reboot. I believe it's a continuation of the other games. Except this time around, they put Kratos, the main character, who is from uh, this kind of fantasy version of, you know, ancient Greece. And uh, he has to fight the go ancient Greek gods and monsters, that kind of thing. And they put him in the uh, setting of the Norse myths. So there's that change, but I believe it is uh, a continuation. And I remember that game became wildly popular. There's a lot of buzz surrounding it. And it was pretty funny. I think the only real uh, time I caught any of the uh, gameplay was I was watching Conan O'Brien and uh, he was playing it with, I forget who he was playing it with. Was it Andy Richter? I don't remember. And they were kind of joking around, you know, kind of uh, riffing off the cuff as they played it. And that was really funny. But at the same time, I remember thinking, man, the graphics are unbelievable. You know, it looked great. 
And uh, it seemed like they changed the mechanics and the camera. It was more of like an over-the-shoulder view, kind of like a more modern Resident Evil game, and less like an old kind of devil uh, may cry hack and slash thing, where you're kind of looking down at your character. But as impressed as I was by the look of the game, I just never got around to purchasing it or playing it. Uh, and I just looked it up. Conan was playing God of War with uh, Bill Hader. Uh, you can actually find that on YouTube. It's pretty funny. And so now we get to the controversy of sorts. So I believe it's scheduled to come out in 2022. But they're releasing a sequel to that 2018 game. And like that one, it's going to take place in the realm of uh, Norse mythology. And this sequel is going to be entitled God of War Ragnarok. And so, as many of you are probably already aware, Ragnarok, which translates to something like Twilight of the Gods, I believe, is basically like the Norse doomsday, uh, where essentially it's the end of the world, even the gods will die. Or at least some of the gods, because after Ragnarok, as the story goes, there will be a period of renewal, there will even be these two Adam and Eve type figures uh, who will repopulate the earth and some of the surviving gods and returning gods will also be there and I believe Baldur returns after Ragnarok um, that's one of the tragic moments in the uh, in the Norse myths is the death of Baldur one of the sons of Odin this very kind of kind beautiful shining figure and Loki tricks uh, Baldur's blind brother into hurling a dart or spear of mistletoe at Baldur, killing him, because all of nature, with the exception of mistletoe, had sworn never to harm this beautiful, beloved, shining god. His only vulnerability was mistletoe, which Loki exploits. And so part of the reason why I'm doing this episode is because there's different ways to approach myth or, you know, historic, I know we're not talking about historical figures, we're talking about mythological characters, but, you know, when we're talking about mythological lore or historical events, some people, including myself, prefer accuracy, prefer when filmmakers or video game developers or whatever stick to a more faithful interpretation of the source material. And other people are cool with mixing things up, taking a lot of artistic license. And I think both of those are valid points of view. Although I will add the caveat that I think when we're talking about history, it is good to try to be as accurate as possible. I think, you know, the way I see it, there's almost arguably a moral duty to try to preserve history for posterity. And, you know, once again, be as accurate as possible. But there have been movies that have taken artistic license or poetic license. And yet they were so, you know, entertaining that, you know, I still enjoyed them and kind of tried to let go of my nitpicking about historical accuracy. One example that always comes to mind is Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Uh, at that time... Um, Scottish warriors wouldn't have been wearing this kind of Celtic woad on their faces, you know, the face paint. And uh, famously in the movie, the Battle of Stirling uh, didn't feature the Stirling Bridge, which as I understand it was actually came down to a budget issue. 
Yeah, I believe historians actually refer to it as the Battle of Stirling Bridge, yet in the movie, no bridge. If you look at depictions of William Wallace, uh, they bear little resemblance to what we see in the movie with Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, you know, is wearing uh, some kind of peasant top and a kilt and wild Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome hair. But yeah, the dress and appearance were completely off. And I think one thing that stuck out like a sore thumb to Scottish historians is that William Wallace was a lowlander, not a highlander, so he wouldn't have been wearing a kilt. But still a very moving and entertaining film, nonetheless, you know. And then I can remember when I was young, I used to like to watch uh, Hercules and Xena. Remember those shows? And uh, I was always torn Because on the one hand, as a young person with a love of mythology and ancient history, I was kind of like, what the hell is this? You know, you have these ancient Greeks running around dressed like, you know, extras from the Road Warrior. But on the other hand, it was, you know, they were undeniably, as cheesy as they could be, kind of fun and colorful and exciting to watch. But to get back to that upcoming God of War game... So, there was a couple of kind of design choices, for lack of a better term, that they made that people kind of took issue with. They released some promotional shots of some of the characters, uh, coupled with the name of the uh, voice actor. And so, they depicted a fat Thor. And I personally found the depiction kind of odd or off-putting, not just because it was a really overweight Thor, but because he was wearing this kind of fantasy armor, but he had a giant cutout for his man boobs and his giant belly. You know, it almost reminded me of, like, maybe if Pinhead from Hellraiser had let himself go. You know how Pinhead has, like, the cutout for his abdomen? Almost this kind of, like, S&M thing. Well, Thor has a big cutout for his, his man boobs and his gut. So, I mean, they probably could have gotten away with making him heavier, you know, kind of over and a kind of overweight Thor if maybe they gave him like a more traditional Viking top, like some kind of tunic, so your attention wasn't being drawn to this gi- ginormous flabby man gut hanging out. And so one of the guys in charge of the game is someone by the name of Matt Sophos or Sophos, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And I think he's technically something like the director of narration or something like that. And he tried to push back against criticisms uh, of the way they depicted Thor online, uh, specifically on Twitter, I believe, by saying this is a depiction of Thor that's more in keeping with the lore or the myths. And um, they do depict Thor having a red, you know, having uh, red hair and a red beard. And um, good for them because, yeah, I mean, unlike the Mar... I actually... There's another thing. Like, I used to take issue with the way Marvel Comics handled the Norse myths because they take a lot of uh, artistic license. Uh, But their take is really, you know, it's grown on me. And I absolutely love Chris Hemsworth as Thor. And, of course, he's blonde in um, in the movies and in the comics. But yeah, generally speaking, in the myths, uh, Thor is referred to as having uh, having red hair or at least a red beard, and I forget the exact source, so don't you know hold me to it. 
But I remember reading in the myths at least once that he was described as having a beard that was stained red from the blood of his enemies. So yeah, the red beard and red hair thing, uh, I think, yeah, they were right on the money with that. And I don't want to go off on a whole long digression about Thor's hair. I can already tell this is going to be a long episode, a lot longer than I planned. But luckily, a lot of you guys seem to like the longer episodes. So, and yes, this is 100% unscripted. But before these uh, kind of Norse-themed God of War games even came out, I can remember debate online regarding... Uh, Marvel's depiction of Thor, you know, some debating uh, in Reddit forums and whatnot over whether or not Thor was red-haired or fit more fair-haired, blonde-haired, according to the myths. And some people tried to defend Marvel's depiction of a blonde Thor. And one source they used to do that was, and uh, okay, here we go, bit of a history lesson. So much of what we know about the Norse myths comes to us via a collection of texts known as the Eddas. On the one hand, we have the Prose Edda, which can be traced back to the early 13th century, I think. It was written by an Icelandic historian uh, slash politician by the name of Snorri Sturluson. I know, crazy name, Snorri. Uh, apologies if any Snorris are out there listening to this. Crazy but cool. I actually like the name. Okay, there we go. And so, uh, and so, anyway, we then also have something called the Poetic Edda, which, appropriately enough, is basically verse, a collection of uh, poems. And the origins of it are a bit more mysterious than the Prose Edda of uh, Snorri Sturluson. Um, and I think much of the... Uh, of the poetic Edda comes from a 13th, also 13th century, 13th century text known as the Codex Regius, I believe it is. And so it's from these combined texts, the Eddas, that we get the lion's share of what we know about the Norse myths. And I think it's good to keep in mind that, at least in the case of Snorri Sturluson, you know, he's writing and... I think we don't exactly know how much of the prose Edda he actually wrote and how much of it was just him compiling existing text. But anyway, you know, he was writing in the 13th century and the Viking Age ended in the 11th century. I think the Viking Age spans from the 8th century into the 11th century. And this reminds me of similar situations you find with other medieval European cultures, such as Ireland, where you had um, Christian scribes translating or copying pagan Celtic stories. And sometimes their Christianity would influence their writings, or they'd even revise stories, pagan stories, to be more in keeping with their Christian sensibilities. Was there anything like that going on with the Eddas? I don't know. I imagine to some degree. I have heard that, you know, heard some people posit that Snorri was Christian. There's a good chance he was. Uh, maybe if you're watching this on YouTube, you could leave a comment. Uh, you know, perhaps someone else knows. But I remember reading an interesting story about uh, Snorri's father, a man named Sturla, hence the name Snorri Sturluson. Um, supposedly his father was in a legal dispute with another man, and the man's wife came at uh, Sturla with a knife, 
and, and said she intended to basically put out his eye with the knife and make him look like his hero, Odin. So was Sterla um, still a pagan, even though by this time much of, uh, much of Scandinavia would have been Christian? Um, I don't know. But I believe it's in the introduction to the prose Edda where uh, things get really kind of weird, where um, Snorri uh, engages in something known as euhemerism. Um, and that's when you take a mythological figure and you give them kind of a royal human pedigree. Um, and I think this is often done. And euhemerism is something you sometimes hear talked about with... Uh, with Christ's mythicism, I think Richard Carrier sometimes talks about euhemerism. Um, but yeah, you're basically positing that a mythological creature, a mythological individual rather, was actually a human man or woman, as the case would be. And um, often that they have some, as I said, some kind of royal pedigree. And this allows, in some cases, uh, actual human figures to claim some kind of um, royal descent or divine descent from a god. And I think there were Scandinavian kings, royalty, ambitious figures who did try to claim that they were related to or descended from one of the Norse gods, such as Thor. And that's why I bring it up, because in the Prose Edda, Snorri, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. It, it might even, if you're a fan of Norse mythology who's never heard this, it might even sound jarring. Um, you know, he claims that Asgard was on the earth and that the Asgardian gods, the Asir, come from Asia. So really weird stuff. And I characterize Snorri as engaging in euhemerization, but I believe these stories, these kind of lineages, um, existed prior to Snorri, or he wasn't creating them out of uh, whole cloth. And as I said, you know, they kind of helped to legitimize the rulership of certain figures, that kind of thing. And of course, this kind of seems at odds with the, you know, Norse mythic cosmology, where you have Asgard, the land of the gods, up above. In the middle, you have Midgard, Middle Land or Middle Earth, where Tolkien got the term, I believe. And then down below, you have Niflheim and Hell, etc. Uh, Hell, H-E-L, only one L. And I've always been fascinated by the similarity. In Greek mythology, Hades is both the name of the god and the realm that he rules over. Uh, Hades being a god, the god of the dead in Greek mythology. And then Norse mythology, Hell is, with one L is both the name of the goddess who rules over the land of the dead and the name of the land of the dead itself. Interesting. And I thought this was only going to be like an eight minute long episode. We're already 19 minutes in and I haven't even finished talking about Thor's hair yet. Anyway, so in that prologue to the prose Edda where um, Snorri is talking about the, uh, the lineage of, uh, of the gods and how the gods were actually human ancestors or whatever, um, I believe Thor is described as having fair hair, 
but the um, the catch is, you know, are, are they saying fair as in light colored or fair as in beautiful to look at? And some people have taken that as a kind of defense of the blonde depiction of Thor in the uh, comics and movies. But finally, let's talk about whether or not Thor is fat. Only took us 20 minutes to get here. And I almost said, was Thor fat? Past tense. When you're talking about mythological character, which tense do you use? I guess since they always exist in the myths, it's best to use the present tense, I suppose. Anyway, um... So, the people behind the game are asserting that this depiction of a fat Thor, that this is more in keeping with the source material, with how Thor is depicted in the myths. And they seem to be basing this on that, in the myths, Thor is depicted as having a hearty appetite, shall we say, really loves his food and drink. You know, like, eats massive amounts of food. And so, they're interpreting this as, you know, he was a fat ass, a glutton or whatever. He ate a lot, so he must have been a big, rotund guy. And in fairness, I can kind of see the logic in that line of thinking or in that assumption. You know, if a character's described as always eating or having a superhuman appetite, then they must be overweight. But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think often, uh, whether or not it reflects, it probably does reflect real life to some degree. But, you know, often men who are strong and virile and active, um, they're often depicted as having big appetites. Uh, and this is a really nerdy comparison, but, you know, hey, why not? It makes me think of, uh, of Goku from Dragon Ball Z, right? He's strong and fit, but he's always stuffing his mouth. It's like he has such a zest for life and he's so, you know, active that he has to really fuel his, his body all the time, you know? And I think it might be a similar thing that's being implied with Thor. Thor is uh, not just the god of thunder, but he's also a fertility god. He's a protector of the people. And I think sometimes he's even kind of depicted as being like um, one of the people, as like a commoner. He was relatable in a sense. And uh, I imagine, and maybe this is uh, me being too presumptuous, that the Norse people... Uh, Viking, not every Norse person was a Viking. A Viking is kind of, uh, kind of like a, a noun and a verb, you know, it described people who went on these kind of raiding expeditions, etc. But I imagine the Norse people probably thought of or envisioned Thor as this big burly man with a zest for life. Like them, he was strong and proud, but still liked to have a good time, liked to eat, liked to drink. But that doesn't mean, you know, he was fat or obese. Um, some people have tried to say, hey, look at the bodies of, you know, strong men or power lifters. And yes, yeah, some strong men and power lifters do look overweight. They have large, you know, bellies. But there's also many who kind of they might look fat at first, but they actually have kind of distended abdomens, but you can still see the kind, it's weird, it's like a, uh, like a six-pack wrapped around a barrel or something, you know, these kind of distended guts. Um, and there's some who are also like big and broad, but have more of like uh, a classic V-shaped 
male torso where they're broad shouldered, but um, the torso tapers down at the waist. I mean, if you look at, I forget his name, but the guy who played uh, the mountain on Game of Thrones, who is actually a strong man, I believe, um, an absolute giant of a man, just perfect for the role, you know? Uh, but he's not ripped like a bodybuilder. That's because bodybuilders try to lose as much fat as possible to the point of, you know, endangering their health, perhaps, when they're getting close to the time of a uh, of a competition. Whereas um, strongmen and powerlifters, they don't need that absolute ripped or cut, chiseled appearance. But like this guy who played the mountain in Game of Thrones, uh, he's not super cut or ripped, but he's not fat by any stretch of the imagination either. And he does have that kind of V-shaped torso. So you can be a big, burly, powerful figure without being obese. And I know it might seem silly to put this much analytical thought into what a mythological figure looks like, but like I was saying, this stuff interests me and, uh, you know, I just follow where my mind goes. I think I just accidentally uh, quoted the psychedelic furs. Pretty sure that was uh, from the song Love My Way. That's weird. Anyway, uh, like I was saying before, they probably could have avoided some of this by, get, you know, cover. I don't want to sound like Anita Sarkeesian, like we got to cover up our video game characters, but they probably could have avoided this by giving him some kind of tunic or a different kind of armor that didn't have a cutout for his bitch tits and giant gut. Pardon the crude language. Anyway, I never use the B word to refer to a woman, but I do sometimes think it's funny to say bitch tits if you're referring to, like, a guy who's got, like, saggy... You know what. Anyway, this show's going off the rails. And so now let's get really controversial while talking about the same game. So there were a couple of things people took issue with when they released those promotional images. One, of course, is Fat Thor, as we just discussed, and the other is their depiction of Angraboda. In Norse mythology, Angraboda is a Jotun, a frost giant, and together with the trickster god Loki, she has three offspring that play um, pretty significant roles in Norse mythology. One is the monstrous wolf Fenrir, or Fenris, which will devour Odin, the king of the gods, at Ragnarok. Another is Jormungandr, I'm probably butchering that, or the Midgard Serpent, a giant snake-like serpent capable of wrapping itself around the world. And at the end, Thor will kill it with his hammer, but in turn, he will die drowning in the snake or serpent's venom. And then the third is their daughter, Hel, as we discussed earlier, the goddess who presides over the realm of the dead. Now, what people took issue with here is they depict Angraboda, once again, a Norse frost giant, um, or giantess, as a young, maybe teenaged African girl. And uh, yeah, so this is one of those weird things. Okay, I've noticed multiple examples of this uh, recently. And for me, you know, it's, it's really weird because no decent person wants to be thought of as a racist or called a racist. And there's this fear that if you comment on examples of what people, you know, some people crudely refer to as race swapping, that you will be called a racist or bigoted. 
But at the same time, it's hard not to notice, you know? And I know this example doesn't neatly fit that because Frost Giant isn't an actual race in the real world, last time I checked. But there are other examples I've, no I've noticed. But this situation is similar in, in a sense. Um, and so just to give my view, my personal view on race, I'm a pretty left-leaning guy. And both ethically and scientifically, I, even, I take issue with the very term race. Uh, I think it's largely a social construct and that can be divisive. I embrace mainstream science, including, as crazy as it might sound, human evolution, um, including the out-of-Africa theory. I think Richard Dawkins used to have a shirt that read, I'm an African ape. It's true, according to evolution, uh, evolutionary science, we are all African apes. We're one race, one species, you know. But our species spread out all over the earth, you know, and we settled into different unique populations and uh, developed different, you know, cosmetic traits, etc. Probably depending, you know, depending on certain environmental pressures, uh, the need for more or less melanin. So we all have, you know, we have different skin shades, different hair types, maybe somewhat different facial features. And some other genetic differences too, like the uh, susceptibility to certain specific diseases, like sickle cell anemia with some African populations or people of African descent, or Tay-Sachs with Ashkena or Ashkenazi people, um, things like that. But at the end of the day, we're still all the same species. Like I think it's been said that there's more genetic difference between two siblings in the same family than there are between two so-called races, you know? That's how similar we all are uh, genetically. It's like a Labrador Retriever and an Irish Setter, you know? They're both, uh, or a Chihuahua and a Great Dane. They might look different, but they're both the same species. Uh, but there are certain cosmetic differences. That being said, I think political correctness can be taken way too far. And there are lots of people who try to go out of their way uh, to do this kind of force virtue signaling for brownie points, social brownie points or whatever. Like I was saying earlier, you know, there's two different ways to look at things uh, or two different approaches when it comes to like film or video games or that kind of thing. One where you try to stay as close as possible to the, to the source material or employ some kind of logical consistency, even though we're talking about fantasy here. Still, I've often said that when it comes to science fiction or fantasy, that's even more reason to try to achieve some kind of realistic grounding or logical consistency because you have to try that much harder to prevent the suspension of disbelief from being disrupted. You know, when you're dealing with gods or aliens or whatever it is, it's harder to maintain the uh, illusion, you know? So the more you can create some kind of realistic grounding, the more people are likely to believe in the fanciful elements of the, st of the uh, story once they encounter them on the screen or whatever. So if you're dealing with Norse mythology, the mythology of a well-Nordic people, uh, and all of a sudden there's a character who is African 
in appearance. It's like, yeah, we're all human beings. We're all the same species, but there are different cultural and cosmetic differences. So if all of a sudden a mythological creature in Viking mythology is given the phenotypical look or facial features of someone from the continent of Africa, there's the chance for, you know, some kind of seeming logical inconsistency. Like, obviously, people are going to go, whoa, didn't see that coming, you know? And of course, there's ways you could probably write it into the script. You could come up with something like an African deity somehow traveled and ended up in, you know, in the Norse pantheon or, or something like that. Um, there are ways that you could try to explain it. But here, and I could be wrong, I haven't played the game or whatever, but it could be that they just swapped out the appearance, which seems kind of odd, you know? But I'm just looking over my notes, and I included a couple of screenshots of the uh, the character, and I will say, I made a note to mention this, whoever did the CGI rendering or the artwork, um, it, it's, it's beautiful. It's, the artist is incredibly talented, and it's actually a really, really cool-looking character. Uh, yeah, the weird part is it's just, you know, trying to wrap your head around the fact that uh, you're dealing with Norse mythology, and suddenly a frost giant looks like a, an African teenager, you know? But, I mean, I could see another workaround, like Loki is technically a frost giant and he's a shapeshifter. So you could have something where she, throughout the game, changes her shape or appearance. And something like that could be kind of fun. One moment she looks like an African teenager, then she looks like a tall blonde woman, then she looks monstrous. I could kind of see something like that. But if this is supposed to be her kind of base identity you know once again people are free to get as wild as they want with their interpretation of you know a, a mythos or whatever it is me personally as i've said probably ad nauseum so far i prefer a, a kind of more logically consistent or closer to the source material interpretation and so there's some interesting twitter exchanges that have been going around um and at, right now i'm looking at bounding into comics and uh, so, yeah, there's a um, a cosplayer, a female cosplayer who happens to be black by the name of Alana Smith. And she was very excited about the character reveal of Angraboda uh, as, you know, a young black woman. And this is interesting because like with any group, you know, there's no group is monolithic or monolith. There's going to be individuals within any given group who demonstrate a wide variety of opinions or takes. And so sometimes when you have situations like this, you'll have people like Alana Smith here. And I get where she's coming from because she sees a figure or character, a video game character that, you know, cosmetically, physically looks something like her. And maybe as a minority, she feels like she doesn't get to experience that that often. She doesn't see as many characters that look something like what she sees in the mirror, you know? Um, and so she gets kind of excited about that and feels good about it. And I can get that. 
And but it's funny, I follow a lot of different kind of pop culture critics on YouTube, and a number of them happen to be black. And it's kind of funny because a number of them, when stories like this come up, where maybe you see a character kind of uh, given the appearance of a minority or a black person when you wouldn't expect it, or maybe it's a straight out race swap where a, a where a popular character is suddenly made black. And often their response will be to kind of hang their head and kind of rub their face in frustration. And they're like, why? You know, we didn't ask you for this. This character is traditionally white. We didn't need you to make him black for us. And they find it kind of like patronizing. Or instead of coming up with a brand new character, they look as one uh, YouTuber I was watching recently worded it, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said basically it feels like we're getting hand-me-downs. You're taking pre-existing characters and lazily, you know, like turning them black. And they were saying, once again, how they found it kind of, you know, patronizing. But there are times, you know, when... I hate saying race swap because it sounds like such a crude or crass term, but there are examples of when it just ends up working, right? I think a big example is like those Mar. I love those Marvel comic book movies, and uh, sadly, some people have been saying that we're probably at the end of that, and it seems to be petering out. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that we're in a pandemic, and in response, film companies have been trying out this new experimental model where they simultaneously release new films, both in physical theaters and at home. So that's been causing a loss of money, at least for some of the stars, like Scarlett Johansson had that lawsuit against Disney, I think it was, right? Uh, but that's sad. Um, like, people sometimes say even bad pizza is still pizza, you know? I'm kind of like, even a bad Marvel movie is still a Marvel movie. Not that I thought uh, Scarlett Johansson's recent Black Widow movie was necessarily bad. I thought it was meh, but it wasn't bad, you know? But anyway, I'm talking about Marvel movies because I was going to give an example or two of when the old swaparoo actually seems to work, you know, or people respond favorably uh, to it or whatever. Um, and one big example, of course, is Samuel Jackson as Nick Fury. But I thought I read recently that there was actually a kind of all alternate universe Nick Fury in the comics who was black. And I don't know if this is, you know, an apocryphal story or whatever, but... Samuel Jackson may have actually seen the black Nick Fury in the comics and said, you know, he wanted to do that. He, he wanted to play that character. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I think everyone loves uh, Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury, right? And another example in a Marvel movie is uh, Idris Elba as Heimdall. And there's an, or Heimdall. Uh, there's another example from. Norse mythology. I remember even me as a Norse mythology buff who looks for a kind of logical consistency or whatever. I remember when I first heard or saw that uh, Heimdall or Heimdall was black. I was kind of like, hmm, I'm like, how's, how's a, a, an African dude get into Viking, you know, <laughs> get into the Viking pantheon, you know? But um, Idris Elba is so charismatic and he's so likable that. I've just kind of, I've gotten used to him as Heimdall or whatever. And I think the kind of multiverse explanation or alternative is is always good, you know? Cuz I remember when 
years ago, you know, all of a sudden we heard that Spider-Man was now black or Hispanic or whatever it was. And he from now on, he's going to be Miles Morales. But turned out, no, there was still Peter Parker. They were doing this whole Spider-Verse thing, right? Where there are a bunch of different Spider-Men and women from different uh, parallel universes or... Um, alternate dimensions or whatever. And I always thought that was like a good compromise because you can have the original character, you know, they're still there. Um, and then you can also have versions of the character that maybe minority kids or whatever can look at and they see someone that looks kind of like what they see in the mirror, you know, and, and they have that. So I, I always thought that was nice. And now all these years later, people have come to love Miles Morales too. And I actually watched that um that animated into the Spider-Verse movie and I actually really like that. And it's kind of cool cuz you got to see all the different Spider-Man or whatever together. Um Yeah, I know I'm a nerd. But let me read that exchange. So yeah, um Alana Smith, that um young uh, female cosplayer, she tweets guess TF uh I'm guess who oh TF the, you know, <laughs> TF on cosplaying. In response to Angra Boda's debut, Smith was asked by another Twitter user why the Norse character was, in quotes, a black person, to which the cosplayer declared, um, also in quotes, because black people exist, get off of my Twitter. Yeah, so I'm looking at the actual tweets now. Alana Smith, God of War, who is that? Guess who, TF, I'm cosplaying. Then someone named Emil Regis or something says, I don't understand. Why a black person? <laughs> and I don't know if English is their first language, but that's probably not the, the blunt way I would have put it. I maybe would have said, hmm, you know, is there some plot reason why how, you know, a Norse frost giant ended up being African or something, you know? But I don't understand. Why a black person? Yeah, then she says in, in bold letters, because black people exist. Get off my Twitter. And then someone going by the name General Rom Coda replies, Not in Norse mythology, ma'am. <laughs> and this is so weird. Like, oh my god. Like, I feel bad for this girl in a way because she just sees this character that she can identify with. And then you have the these other dudes who I get where they're coming from too. But, you know, the way it comes off, like they're <laughs> ganging up on some young black girl because they don't like the color of a, of a video game character. Uh, but I mean, yeah, so cut, not the friendliest, you know, way to dialogue with someone. These weird, blunt um, sentences like, uh, why a black person? Not in Norse mythology, man. But he's technically right, you know. It's like uh, she's saying black people exist and he's saying not in Norse mythology, which I get, you know, once again, Norse mythology is a realm of fantasy, so you could argue that oh, anything's possible or whatever. But myths, gods, these things kind of, I think, organically arise within a, a culture. And usually the um, deities of a given pantheon, you know, the people whose culture that pantheon belongs to, they probably envision their gods as looking like them. You know, and most... Nordic people, I mean, sure, the Vikings, they won 
far afield. The Vikings made it to the Mediterranean, they made it to Asia, and yes, even uh, parts of Africa. So there may have well been Vikings, etc., who did see um, African people. And I don't know how much I buy into it, but there's even theories. Like, there are some well-known, kind of famous Viking characters. Uh, by characters, I mean historical, real historical people, as far as we know, at least going by the sagas, etc., who had superlatives or descriptors like the Black, like Hafton the Black or something like that, which I think most likely that was probably just a reference to their hair color, or maybe they were swarthy by Nordic standards. But some people say technically, you know, they could have been the, uh, the child of a union between uh, a Nordic, a Viking and, um, a black person or a dark skinned person that they encountered or possibly enslaved or, or whatever, you know, did I just sound like Ken Hovind possibly? I was just trying to say it on the down low, you know, cause slavery is a disturbing topic, but you get what I'm saying. But I think most Nordic people wouldn't even know what a, an African person looks like. So to think that one of their, um, mythological, you know, characters would be black doesn't make logical sense. And so it continues at real Rom, the real Rom Coda. I don't know who that is. Was he's the guy who said, um, not in Norse mythology, ma'am. Was then met with pushback from Sophus or Sophus himself. Remember, that's the guy who is the um, director of narration or the narrative director or whatever for the game, who asked. Do they also have blue dwarves in Norse mythology? Was Loki the son of a Greek demigod? Please show me in the Eddas where it says that all Jotun were lily white. Let me save you the time. You can't, he declared. I've read them. So this guy's just so insufferable, man. Ah, oh, I can't stand. Know who else read the Eddas? I did, motherfucker. Did I just say I did? I did. Come at me, bro. No, but what I can't stand about this guy is just the snark and the kind of. I don't know if he's just actually obtuse or if he's intentionally being intellectually dishonest. But there's definitely flaws with his comeback here, his reasoning. So I guess in the in the last game that came out, um, the one that was simply entitled God of War, which also took place in the realm of Norse mythology, um, there were dwarves that were blue-skinned. That's what he's referencing there. And uh, I guess Loki... Okay, so Kratos is the God of War. He's Greek. Um, that's the main character who comes from the original God of War games where it was set in the realm of Greek mythology. And so I guess in the game spoiler alert, that Loki, the Norse god of mischief, is Kratos' son. So he's saying, was Loki the son of a Greek demigod? So to me, the thing about the blue dwarves is a very flawed analogy because a dwarf is a magical creature like a troll or an elf. So choosing arbitrarily to color a magical creature a color which, unless, you know, you're poisoned with colloidal silver, no one is in real life. There are, there actually, there have been, there was one blue guy who was literally poisoned by colloidal silver and he had a white beard and he looked like uh, Papa Smurf. But generally speaking, um, 
people are not blue. So making a non-existent fantasy creature a color that people aren't in real life is a bit different than taking a character from Norse mythology and giving it the physical appearance of an African person. African people are real. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's a little incongruous. That anal analogy doesn't really hold water to me. Or, or that comparison. And the thing about Loki being Kratos' son, I mean, I, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm just one person. And these games have been wildly popular. Um, the 2018 game was wildly successful. I'm sure the next one probably will be as well. So the fact that I don't plan on playing either one, that's no skin off their backs. You know, <laughs> that doesn't matter. Some, you know, obscure podcaster decide not to play their game. Oh, I'm sure they really care. You know what I mean? But hearing the plot makes me kind of glad I didn't play the 2018 one because Loki is Kratos' son. There's blue... Whatever. But um, at least... In the case of Loki being Kratos' son, at least there's an explanation for why that is. You know, there's this kind of plot twist, I guess, where Kratos travels to the north, makes love or whatever, gets romantically involved with a Nordic woman. Maybe she's a goddess, I don't know. And then they have a son, and ironically, the son is Loki. So at least you're describing it. You know, it's explained away by the, by the plot. And who knows, in fairness to them, maybe once again, there's an explanation for this character's appearance. And so then it continues, turning Sophus's or Sophus's logic back on him, at real Ron Coda responded, then I trust that you'll make some of the mythological characters white in the eventual Egyptian series of God of War games. Wouldn't want any double standards, correct? And so this is real third rail stuff. And so people have pointed out that there's a kind of double standard with these situations, but I think there may it may be a nuanced distinction with the double standard that makes the double standard somewhat understandable if that doesn't sound too convoluted and what I mean is yeah if you took a black character whether they be you know a mythological black and I know some people try to troll people online with a um, this kind of painting or image of a white black panther like a blonde Aryan looking guy in the uh, in the black panther suit um, so yeah if you like made black panther white which in the comics he may have been it sometime I, I think or if you took a real black historical character and whitewashed them, there would be huge backlash, right? But I understand that there is a kind of historical power differential where it always looks worse if it's the majority punching down at the minority than a minority punching up or imposing on a majority, right? Like, to use that example, if you made Black Panther white... Or if you replace Shaka Zulu, you know, instead of using a black actor you, in 2021, you used a white actor in blackface, that would seem probably a hell of a lot worse than making a frost giant black, right? But ideally, I think, you know, why do you have to do either? 
when there's plenty of good workarounds, like I was saying, you can have multiverse things where you can take some of the most popular um, comic book characters like they've done, like Spider-Man or Superman, and you make alternate universe black ones. That way you still have the original character and people don't feel like you're taking a character they're familiar with and swapping the skin color for, you know, virtue signaling brownie points. And at the same time, you can have this alternative universe character that young minority kids can look at and say, oh, you know, there's, like I was saying, there's someone that kind of looks like me when I look in the mirror, they have my same skin tone or whatever, you know? And um, you can always come up with new characters, great new characters who happen to be black or Latino or whatever. Like some of my favorite fictional characters, a comic book characters like Spawn or Blade, uh, you know, there's characters like that where, and those are awesome. I was almost going to swear. I was going to say those are awesome effing characters, man. Just badass characters that I love. You know, it's like, why not pour your heart and your mind and your effort into creating a new character out of whole cloth that, you know, is black or Latino or whatever or Asian instead of just taking a character that's been around that people are familiar with and changing its, its appearance for the sake of political correctness or whatever. But then after the uh, guy asked Sophus about, you know, a double standard, are you going to have any white Egyptian gods or whatever? He replies, uh, Matt Sophus replies, you do know Jotun or Jotun aren't real, right? They can be anyone or anything. Some are even giant serpents. And he's referring to the Midgard serpent. But I get it. You were only okay with Jormungandr because his scales were right. His scales were white, right? So he's saying basically accusing the guy, I don't know, of being a racist or whatever, saying, you were only okay, basically, with the Midgard serpent, this giant snake, because his scales were white. Okay, so once again, fake creature, or, you know, fake sounds bad, because what we now call myths were someone's actual act of religious beliefs or whatever at one time, right? Um, so, giant snakes don't actually, well, giant snakes that can wrap around the earth. So the Midgard serpent is a fictional creature. So you could probably make it any damn color you want. I don't think the Eddas or anything go into great detail about the color of its scales. So there's a difference between what color should we arbitrarily make this giant snake that doesn't exist in real life? And once again, taking a character from the mythology of a Nordic people and giving it the appearance of someone from another, for lack of a better term, racial group. You can see there's kind of like, you know, a weird logical inconsistency there. Once again, I'm totally up for, you know, if you come up with some kind of narrative explanation for why this character has the, the physical appearance of someone from another group or something like that. Um, you know, as long as you can explain it logically, it's, it's and I know... Logic seems like a weird choice of words when we're dealing with mythology and fantasy. But you know what I mean. Give it some kind of semblance of a grounded, you know, logical explanation. Um, like, hell, you know, you could even have a cool story about a half-black Viking. Like I was saying earlier, you could have, um, uh, you know, almost like a... Or you could have like a 13th warrior situation. And explain how, you know, a black character made it to um, medieval... Uh, 
Scandinavia. So there's all sorts of cool things you could probably do that might make narrative sense, but just arbitrarily, or probably not arbitrarily, probably doing it out of, you know, for political, politically correct brownie points or whatever, giving a character the kind of racial appearance of a different group, you know, it just seems a little strange or forced. But it's interesting that Guy brought up uh, ancient Egypt or whatever, saying, you know, kind of sarcastically, I trust that when you, you know, I trust that you'll make some of the mythological characters white in the eventual Egyptian series of uh, God of War games. It wouldn't want a double standard. It, that brought up something else because I like to think I'm consistent with this stuff because as a fan of ancient history, one of my pet peeves has always been when I'm watching a biblical movie or a movie that takes place in ancient Egypt. Sometimes it's both, right? Like the story of the Exodus. And you have lily white people playing ancient Egyptians or playing, uh, you know, Israelites or whatever. When I think it's complicated when you try to get to the exact ethnicity of the ancient Egyptians. Egypt is technically part of Africa, and there were Nubian dynasties. And uh, when you look at tomb paintings, etc., hieroglyphics, you can see people of all different skin tones. But it's probably safe to say the ancient Egyptians wouldn't have been lily white, you know. <laughs> and um, and uh, the ancient Jews, the ancient uh, Hebrews, Israelites, were Semitic people, so they wouldn't have been lily white either. So that always kind of takes it takes me out of it. You know, it kind of always interferes with my suspension of disbelief. And I also find it kind of ethically problematic or offensive, you know? Why not give these parts to people who um, are closer to the actual ethnicity of the people they're portraying? You know what I mean? And instead of just whitewashing it. Um, so I try to be fair with that. And... There are some exceptions. I have, like, I can't stay. Uh, usually, I can't stand when the white biblical characters, you know, when they whitewash biblical characters or have a lily white Jesus with blonde hair. I usually prefer a kind of Semitic looking Jesus. But for some reason, even though I'm an atheist and all that, maybe it's just like a nostalgia thing or had an effect on me as a child. But I absolutely love the TV miniseries, Franco Zeffirelli's, or Zeffirelli rather, Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. There was something really haunting. I think the actor's name is Robert Powell, about Robert Powell's uh, portrayal of Jesus. Very haunting, very kind of powerful and mesmerizing. I thought the miniseries had a really powerful uh, score, musical score. And I think, I don't know if it what the guy's exact title was, if he was the producer, but there was a guy backing that miniseries who was Jewish. And I guess that series, relatively speaking, had more of a Jewish influence or flavor to it than other um, biblical movies, which tended to be very whitewashed. Um, and uh, I'm also a huge fan of The Last Temptation of Christ. Um, not because, you know, it's offensive or towards Christians or it's edgy or controversial. I just think it's a very powerful story. Um, but even that, whenever I, even though I love Willem Dafoe and I think it's a very powerful movie, whenever I watch The Last Temptation of Christ, I'm like, man, is Willem Dafoe white? <laughs> or I'm listening to... Um, 
Harvey Keitel's thick New York accident is accident. There's a Freudian slip. Thick, thick New York accent when he's playing, you know, this ancient Jewish figure or whatever. Uh, he plays Judas. And I can feel myself losing steam, but there was something else I wanted to talk about that's related to this. I mentioned how I've noticed uh, multiple instances of quote-unquote race swapping uh, recently. And uh, a couple of instances are within the same franchise. And so I'm a Resident Evil freak. I love the Resident Evil game, uh, game series. And so I remember when I was a teenager and I was getting into my late teens, for some reason I felt like I was supposed to grow out of kid stuff. And I thought playing video games was kid stuff. I feel like there may have been more of a stigma against adult gamers back in the day than there is now. I feel like now um, adults playing video, adults who play video games is just kind of a given. You know, um, it seems like most adults, even if you don't have like a, a gaming PC or a console, uh, you're, you probably at least have games on your iPhone or your mobile device, but it's become very normal for adults to play video games. And so I remember when I was getting into my, um, in my 20s, and I started to feel nostalgic for, or a sense of nostalgia for some of the games I played when I was young. So I downloaded some emulators and played some old school games. And then eventually I ended up buying a uh, Nintendo GameCube. And I started playing like the Resident Evil remakes because they did these beautiful remakes of... Um, the first Resident Evil game, as well as Resident Evil Zero, and then they came out with Resident Evil 4. And this was the GameCube, so these graphics were really ahead of their time. And it still blows my mind just how how well-polished and kind of breathtaking and kind of, you know, just these beautiful cinematic graphics. And it's kind of funny because now the Nintendo GameCube seems like some ancient artifact. And I remember the games were so powerful, they took up so much room that inside the case, you got two discs and you'd be prompted at like the halfway point through the game to put the other disc in because that's how, you know, powerful or whatever the, the uh, graphics were. Um, and it's funny, Resident Evil 4 still holds up. There's like younger generations that are discovering Resident Evil 4 and, and they still find the graphics somewhat impressive. Um, and I still, like once in a while, I'll still bust out Resident Evil 4. I love playing that Mercenaries uh, unlockable game. That's, I've been addicted to that mini game for like a couple of decades now. But yeah, so I really love the Resident Evil video games, and I feel this kind of attachment to the characters. And so like a lot of Resident Evil fans, I have this kind of mixed take on those Mila Jovovich, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Resident Evil movies. Um, what's her husband's name? Is it Paul Anderson? But he made this whole series, uh, this long ongoing series of Resident Evil movies, and I think like a lot of Resident Evil fans, I find them disappointing, frustrating, laughable because they bastardize the uh, the canon, the you know the the story arc so much, and they're such a mess. But at the same time, they're kind of a guilty pleasure because they're they're just an, a crazy, frenetic, you know, action-packed fun ride. 
But once again, they're just a complete mockery or mangling of the uh, official, you know, canonical Resident Evil storyline, so to speak. And so I always thought that, man, I can't wait for these movies to just go away and die and I can pretend they ne never existed. And maybe someone else will come along and make a Resident Evil series that's really faithful to the source material. And that really gets the casting right and, you know, the actors really look like the characters in, from the video games, etc. And oh boy, how, how that dream was dashed. Like most dreams. No, but recently, Netflix um, has announced a, a couple of different Resident Evil shows. And then they're actually, pretty soon, it's supposed to hit theaters soon. There's going to be another Resident Evil movie. They're starting, uh, you know, a new film series, a new Resident Evil film series, just like I wanted, but not quite. So as far as those Resident Evil Netflix series go, I already binge-watched one of them. There's a CGI series. It's pretty easy binge-watching because I think the episodes are pretty short. I think it's called Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. And I get the feeling, I didn't look it up, but I'm familiar with the um, Resident Evil CGI movies. And, and they're usually made by a Japanese team. And the, the good thing is they look just like the games because you're basically watching one giant extended, you know, cinematic uh, video game cutscene or whatever. So the, the characters look exactly like they do in the games. But sometimes when you're dealing with something that's been translated from, you know, another culture uh, or another language... It can be, the result can be a little awkward. And Resident Evil is a Japanese video game franchise. Like Devil May Cry, they're both from uh, Capcom. And for some reason, as a fan of a lot of Japanese franchises, I kind of like the weird awkwardness that results due to that cultural divide and some things don't always translate quite the same. I like that resulting weirdness. But it does make the CGI movies and the TV series just a little awkward or clunky, you know, but at least it looks right. And then it hasn't been released yet, but they're coming out with a Resident Evil live-action television series. And this is something I've always dreamed about. Like, I hoped when they were done with those Paul Anderson or whatever his name is, uh, awful Resident Evil movies, that someone would do either a movie series or a television series, and they would really get it right. It would stick with the, the plot, the story arc from the original games. The casting would be dead on, you know? I, was, I really wanted something like that. So this is, uh, so one of the main, not to get super, I'm getting super nerdy. One of the main characters, one of the main villains from the Resident Evil series is a character named Albert Wesker. And here's a little factoid, a little fun fact. I believe his appearance was actually based on the actor who played the Liquid Terminator in, uh, that was Terminator 2, right? What's the, is the actor's name Robert Patrick? Is that it? I should look that up. Robert Patrick. Yep, that's it. Robert Patrick. And a weird fun fact about that guy. I believe his brother is the lead singer of... Uh, oh my god. Is it Filter? Is that the name of the band? Anyway, and he was on uh, The X-Files for a while too. But yeah, and you can see it. When you look at Albert Wesker and you think about the Liquid Terminator guy, it, it, it is dead on. To the point where... 
uh, back in the day, I used to wish that they'd make a Resident Evil movie where they cast, uh, cast, yeah, there's a, uh, Freudian slip, where they casted Robert Patrick as Wesker, but I think he's probably too long in the tooth now, um, but yeah, that would have been amazing. And so, like Robert Patrick, Albert Wesker is traditionally depicted as a kind of slender, built, white dude with uh, blonde hair, usually slicked back, like the um, Liquid Terminator character that his appearance was supposedly based on. Um, yeah, so white dude, slicked back, blonde hair, uh, kind of long, narrow face. Yeah, kind of like a slender yet muscular build. Um, and so they released promotional shots for the upcoming live-action Resident Evil series, and they showed... Um, Albert Wesker, and they cast Lance Riddick in the role of Albert Wesker. So Lance Riddick is an awesome actor. He was in The Wire, charismatic dude, you know, definitely like him. Uh, but Lance Riddick is a tall, kind of uh, aging black gentleman with a shaved head. So quite a different... <laughs> And this is like one of those, I'm like, guys, I'm sorry I'm talking about race. Please believe me, I'm not like some weird bigoted dude, you know. But I'm like, I for like a decade now, I've been waiting for like a Resident Evil TV show or, or movie series that sticks to the story, the the uh, the storyline from the games, and that cast people that look like the spitting image or as close as you can realistically get to the characters from the games. So. Albert Wesker is based on the Liquid Terminator. They cast a bald black dude as him. And it's not about... I mean, it's about race in the sense just the cosmetic difference. But if they had cast Danny DeVito as Albert Wesker, I would have the same reaction. You know what I mean? Or name any other actor... Uh, be they white or anything else, that isn't a pale-skinned guy with slick-back slick blonde hair. You know what I mean? So I'm like, mm, guess I'm not getting that super close to the source material Resident Evil <laughs> thing after all. It's, it almost looks like a reverse Bukaki thing because the promotional shot is Lance Riddick standing in the center with his arms folded, I think. And then he's flanked on either side by a bunch of young, attractive women. So yeah, it almost looks like the DVD cover art for like a reverse gangbang movie. Um, my inner sensor is just falling asleep. I've been at this for so long. And then as far as the upcoming Resident Evil live-action movie goes, they finally released a couple of promotional shots for that. And um, to put it crudely, you know, that... Uh, that term race swapping, they do a bit of that with the uh, the Resident Evil live action movie. And people were really ragging on the um, quality or lack thereof of the promotional shots, comparing um, one shot to bad cosplay or whatever. But another huge fan favorite of the, the Resident Evil series is Leon Kennedy. Um, 
he, he starts off in the second Resident Evil game as a young rookie, his first day on the police force when the zombie outbreak occurs. And so it's kind of a baptism by fire and he has to survive the city. And there's also a female character named Claire Redfield. Um, I know I'm a nerd. You don't have to tell me who is the um, sister of another one of the protagonists, Chris Redfield. So one of the promotional shots shows Leon and Claire. And Leon Kennedy's appearance has been established over the course and pretty consistent over the course of about three or four different games. Let me see. There's Resident Evil 2, uh, the remake of Resident Evil 2, so you could count that as like two games. Uh, he was in Resident Evil 4, Resident Evil 6. He was probably in others that I'm not thinking of. And then... Several movies, several Resident Evil, um, the CGI movies, not the abominations made by Mila Jovovich's husband or whatever. And so, generally speaking, he's a youngish, well, he's a rookie in the first one. They age him a little for Resident Evil uh, 4 because it's supposed to take place some years after. I think they did change his hair a little in the, uh, in the very, in Resident Evil 2, this was old school an old school video game that you know where the characters still had kind of pixelated appearances and whatnot in the first in the original resident evil 2 i think he almost looks like the singer from simply red he has like a shock of red hair parted on the side then um for resident evil 4 and for the remakes and the subsequent games he's had uh blonde hair parted on the side i remember when i first played resident evil 4 Res did I say Resident Evil Thor? I don't know. Well, imagine that. When I first played Resident Evil 4. Um, man, I'm just like, I feel punch drunk or something. I'm just like so sleep deprived, so exhausted from... This is an unscripted episode. I've been going for over an hour now. But I remember when I first played Resident Evil 4, I had trouble getting over the feeling. I'm like, no like super secret agent law guy would wear, would wear his hair like that. You know, it's kind of like a pretty boy hairstyle, and it seems very impractical. He has, like, um, a, a head full of long blonde hair, but, but that comes down, like, it hangs in his eyes, but short in the back. And so that's kind of been his look. Um, youngish white dude, thin, with... Uh, light-colored hair parted on the side. And I thought I they changed his facial features a little for Resident Evil 4. Well, the original, like I said, the original Resident Evil 2, it was the graphics were so old school, it was hard to tell what his exact facial features were. But I thought I remember hearing that, in part, David Bowie was the inspiration for his facial features. Um, and you can see a little bit of that in like the shape of his nose, maybe, and around the eyes. Because he does, he has almost like kind of like a pretty boy glam rocker thing going where, uh, yeah, like he's a, a young white guy with, uh, with a, a kind of stylish hair that's parted on the side and hangs in his eyes. Um, and so in the promotional shot, you can clearly see that they made him um, a brown dude with black hair, and I'm not sure, I thought I heard someone say he, he may be Indian, but it looks like he, he could be Hispanic, perhaps, but, um, yeah, so they made him a, a brown-skinned dude with dark facial hair and, and, and a head of black hair, and I remember looking at it, and I'm kind of like, 
okay. So they're not they're not aiming for um, consistency with the source material here either. And I think the director said in response to some of the... Because I think also another fan favorite is a female character named Jill Valentine. And they, um, Jill Valentine was a white character and um, they cast a half-Nigerian actress as Jill Valentine. So kind of more olive skin looking, dark hair, I think. And I actually recognized the actress. I think she was in Ant-Man and the Wasp or one of those Marvel movies. And she's like gorgeous. I remember seeing this girl in, in that movie and like breathtakingly gorgeous, just like a really attractive young woman. And um, so they cast her as Jill. And so, yeah, so there's two main characters where um, the actress they cast don't look like their video game counterparts, at least the pigmentation. But the director said he was going more for the energy uh, or feel of the characters and that he didn't want to cast people who just looked like the characters because, um, you know, they might not have the acting chops or might not embody the spirit of the character. When, of course, there's been plenty of examples of um, when you know, directors or casting agents or whatever have cast characters that, or have cast actors that are both able to do a good job in bringing the character to life faithfully to the source material. And they actually, perhaps to some degree, with the help of the makeup department, actually look like the character too. And I think some glaring examples of that are some of the casting for those Marvel movies like Chris Hemsworth as Thor, uh, Robert Downey Jr. as um, Tony Stark, etc., etc. And I can kind of see it. Like when I look at the still photo of uh, the, the character who, of the actor who's playing Leon in costume, it looks like the build is kind of right. Maybe even the facial features are, are kind of right. And his posture and everything, maybe he does kind of have that Leon, you know, there's big dick energy, there's Leon Kennedy energy. Maybe he does kind of have Leon Kennedy, Kennedy energy. But yeah, if you're looking for someone that looks like, uh, you know, if you were waiting for, for, you know, someone that looks like Leon from the games, this isn't it, at least not pigmentation-wise, you know? And at this point, I'm just kind of like, should I even care about this shit anymore, you know? And I really did. Once again, I thought this would be like an eight-minute long episode, and here we are, almost an hour and 20 minutes. And I have been thinking about this stuff a lot lately. And one silver lining I can think of with this kind of thing is that it does at least... For me, you know, it has, it, it spurred me into a kind of introspection and I've had to ask myself, okay, what does it mean that I'm kind of bothered by these instances when they switch a character who I'm familiar with and that I'm fond of, when they switch their ethnicity or their race, why does that instill a negative or trigger a negative reaction in me. Am I right to feel the way I do? And, you know, I'm reacting to the, there's a character that I, that I'm really fond of that I'm used to, even though they're fictional. Some of these characters, you've known them for so long and been so familiar with their fixed appearance. 
that they're almost like friends or cherished acquaintances. You know, it'd be like if someone you've known for years, um, you know, maybe they come over to your house every weekend and one day they show up on the doorstep and their appearance is totally changed, but they're still like, hey, it's me, Leon, you know? <laughs> and I will say that, like I was saying before, it's not really about race, only in some very kind of superficial cosmetic sense, because when you switch a character's quote-unquote race or ethnicity, there's going to be an alteration of the visual appearance, but that could also apply to changing a character's height, um, leaving the character the same race, but changing their hair color, uh, changing their build. So it's more about just altering a visual appearance that you're used to. And to that point, I found minor changes in the appearance of some of these canonical characters to be kind of off-putting or jarring. For instance, in the remakes of Resident Evil 2 and Resident Evil 3 that recently came out, they completely changed the look of uh, Jill Valentine, the protagonist of Resident Evil 3. Well, completely changed is too much of an exaggeration now that I think about it, because they got some basics right. Stuff like age, build, uh, she's still a white chick with... <laughs> with um, kind of like chin length or relatively shortish hair. Uh, the clothing they give her is at least kind of reminiscent of the outfit she originally wore. And I think her original outfit might be um, unlockable content or whatever. But they completely changed the facial model. Because I remember the uh, facial model for Jill in the... Um, now I'm forgetting about it. Uh, uh, the Resident Evil 1 remake for the GameCube and Jill in um, Resident Evil 5. And I think, was she in another one? Um, but they use the same model. And this is how geeky or perverted I am. I know the name of the model. Uh, it was a, an actress slash model named Julia Voth. Uh, V-O-T-H. She was the... Um, the motion capture and face uh, face model for Jill Valentine in those two games. And I think she also did the voice, too. And, uh, yeah, a really attractive woman, Julia Voth. Um, and if you look at Julia Voth, I mean, it's just dead ringer. They just took her face and gave it to, to Jill or whatever. Then all of a sudden, with the remake, they used a totally different... Um, facial model or whatever so that was kind of jarring and then with leon in the remake of resident evil 2 i mean i get making some kind of a change because he's supposed to be a rookie in resident evil 2 so he's gonna look kind of younger more uh fresh-faced but it seemed like they changed the facial features a little and they've also tinkered with the facial features a little of leon in some of those cgi movies so i can find even little stuff like that off-putting you know and i, I find myself being kind of a fuddy-duddy and like i like the old leon or whatever Oh, but one thing I noticed, but I never had anyone to talk to it about, because I, I don't know any other, like, rabid Resident Evil fans <laughs> or whatever, but, and I never thought I'd find myself talking about it on the show. So there was a controversy with the remake of Resident Evil 3, where people were accusing the game developers or designers of being too politically correct in, change, in uh, changing Jill Valentine's outfit. So in the original 
um, Resident Evil 3, Nemesis, I think it was called, and that was way back in the day, too. It's, it had the kind of pixelated, more simplistic look. And uh, But she wears, I think it's kind of like a blue tube top and a skirt. And I think in the remake, they gave her what people were referring to as a skirt. It, it, it looked like her old skirt, but it was technically shorts. And they thought the reason they did it was, yeah, they tried to be politically correct because there's scenes where Jill has to crawl through vents and stuff, and they thought maybe they were trying to change the outfit so, you know, there weren't these kind of salacious moments where you were, like, looking up the character's skirt. And I don't think that's the case after playing the game because there was one of the most perverse... And disturbing moments in any Resident Evil game in Resident Evil 3, the remake. It's really like disturbingly phallic. So there's an area of the game or a part of the game where you it's one of those annoying it's where I absolutely love Resident Evil, and yet I still always complain about the puzzles, which are in every game. So there's like a big caged area that's like overgrown with vegetation and you have to go around and try to turn these little terminals back on and there's like this these giant overgrown insect creatures and it is so i mean i've been there since the beginning and, and this is disturbing even for me with resident evil so and i think you only go through this section of the game as jill i could be wrong but i think it's specifically as jill and so it's like some weird, perverse, hentai nightmare thing where these this kind of like giant cockroach-like ins grotesque insect thing will grab you from above and uh, it seizes Jill and kind of grabs her by the neck or whatever and it jams like a limb or protuberance. It jams part of its body down her throat and pump some kind of gross goo into her into her mouth and it's pouring out and everything and I'm like that is so creepy and disgusting and undeniably like disturbingly phallic um and it it's almost reminiscent of it reminds me how with uh the aliens movies or alien movies how after watching documentaries on those movies I think specifically the first one um, and yeah, the Xenomorph was based on, um, H.R. Giger, is that it? Uh, I love the guy's art, but I always forget, um, his initials or whatever, but it was based on one of his, um, his series of nightmarish drawings. Uh, I think the book, you can find the original concept of the Xenomorph in is, is in one of his Necronomicon, uh, compendiums or whatever. But yeah, but I think both the face hugger and the xenomorph's inner jaws, or those things were intentionally meant to be like evocative or be like euphemism for forced sexual copulation or whatever. And this kind of reminds me of that, but more blatantly. So you just have this gross insect creature forcing itself, some kind of appendage, down into Jill's mouth and throat and like forcefully violate her. Uh, just really gross. And, uh, after that part, I'm like, I remember like I would dread going through that part again because I just found that 
and I'm someone who has like dark sensibilities. And I like morbid warp stuff, but that was like too much for me. And I didn't like going through that section of the game. And I'm like, no, I don't think they would change the design of her skirt because they were afraid of some, you know, backlash or whatever for being too sexual or for objectifying her when later in the game she's basically being what seems sexually violated by a giant bug you know that doesn't make sense and so one last thing one more thing like uh there's my horrible colombo impression uh there was one more uh movie i watched recently where they did kind of a swap i watched uh, i think it might be just entitled the green knight but as you can probably imagine, I'm also a big fan of the Arthurian legends. And everyone's probably somewhat familiar with the story of Gawain and the Green Knight. So you have Arthur and his knight celebrating or whatever. And this mysterious Green Knight shows up. And I've always thought that the Green Knight seemed like a symbol of, um, of the green, the woods, of the old gods, of uh, nature or whatever, you know. So the Green Knight comes in and as a game of sorts challenges one uh, or puts forward the challenge to any of Arthur's knights who's willing to volunteer or whatever that they'll trade blows and whatever kind of blow or or injury the knight lands on the green knight he'll repay in kind in a year's time and i've always thought that there's some kind of message or moral to the story about who knows maybe humility or kindness hospitality whatever but Gwen, instead of just landing or inflicting a kind of symbolic blow or a little nick or whatever he goes all out and you know aggressively cuts off the green knight's head and to everyone's amazement or horror the green knight you know gets up lifts up his head he either puts it back on or takes it with him i forget but and so then Gwen has a year to prepare but in a year's time man time is up he's going to have to have his head chopped off in return he's going to be paid in kind you know and so this uh, this famous story of the Arthurian cycle or whatever, uh, Gawain and the Green Knight. So I think this recent movie, as I said, was simply called The Green Knight or Green Knight, I forget. But um, the character of, Gra of uh, Gawain, they cast, uh, I believe, an Indian actor, well, a, a British actor of Indian descent. And I think in the movie, they call him Garvin, I think it is, instead of Gawain. My guess is that's probably an older pronunciation or spelling i don't know if possibly welsh or something but yeah i believe it's garvin or garvin or something like that instead of gawain and i actually think i i like the movie um it was a little kind of long and plodding but it was very atmospheric in a good way. I really liked uh, how atmospheric the film was. There was something about the feel of the movie, the score. Um, yeah, it had this very kind of uh, surreal, mythic, almost like dreamlike quality about it that I really liked. And the, the actor who played Gawain or Garvin, um, he was very charismatic and he was a good actor. And the further the movie went on, the more I found myself liking him and kind of sympathizing with the character and his plight. Um, 
But yeah, it was strange. You know, it's like I said, it's like you don't want to seem racist or bigoted, but you're watching in uh, a movie about, you know, the Arthurian legends, which takes place in medieval England, or at least a fantasy version of medieval England and um, pseudo historical version. And so you're expecting to see a bunch of Anglo-looking dudes, right? And all of a sudden, the main character is a brown-skinned gentleman who happens to be of Indian descent, right? So, I mean, you can't... I mean, I think in a way it would be intellectually dishonest to say you didn't notice or you don't raise an eyebrow for a moment because, you know, it's something you weren't expecting or it doesn't seem... Um, maybe, you know, there's not there's a seeming lack of logical consistency again where it takes place in a certain place so you'd expect the people to look the way people in that place in that time tended to look which would be white europeans right so but i think both the director of the green knight um similarly to um the director of the upcoming resident evil movie and similar i think to the the um narrative director of the upcoming god of war ragnarok game they all seem to have a similar approach they were basically saying this is meant to be a fantasy version of this place that we're viewing through our own lens you know and we're going more for the spirit of the thing or whatever or kind of putting our twist on it you know and so once again, they're free to take that kind of approach. I guess it's in the eye of the beholder or the individual audience member or video game player or, you know, to decide whether you agree with that approach or whether the people making that work of art, whether it be a movie, a TV show or a video game, whether you agree with their sensibilities or share their uh, sensibilities. My problem with, uh, was it Matt Sophis or whatever, the narrative director for um, God of War Ragnarok? My problem with him was a, a seeming lack of intellectual honesty or the kind of disingenuous arguments he put forth or whatever, or at least, you know, not well-formed arguments. Um, if he had just come out and said, because as, as a left-leaning person myself, if he had said, you know, we know it might seem a little weird when you're playing this game that's supposed to take place in this Nordic world and all of a sudden you see um, an African frost giant or whatever, you know. We know that might seem like a little strange or, you know, might raise an eyebrow at first. But we want to use our games to promote inclusivity and diversity so we've decided in our games to include at least a character or two that maybe you know black or brown kids can look at or players can look at and, and you know get a sense that there's at least a couple of characters that look like them you know um then i'd be like hey man at least you're honest about it holy shit and uh you know i might like stuff that sticks closer to the source material but it, at least there's a kind of positive or good intentioned reason why you're doing it, you know, it, it just, I would appreciate that kind of intellectual honesty and I would even understand what they were trying to do, you know, but you guys can let me know what you think. I think I'm going to call that a wrap finally. 
Um, it is now 11 p.m. on a on a uh, Sunday, and I have to be at the endodontist by nine o'clock in the morning tomorrow. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely gonna turn in. Uh, thanks uh, as always for listening, and you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, if you don't think I'm a bigot, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters of all colors and hues, etc. Uh, until next time.